Crossing Phase, the first podcast featuring a Muslim and a Christian talking religion and politics. My name is Matt Hawkins. I'm a former policy director with the Southern Baptist Convention, and my co-host is John Pinna. He is executive director and founder of Muslims for Muslims. If you're listening to this on audio, please know that we're now over on YouTube, so you can check us out there. And if you're watching on YouTube, Pleased to report that you can take us um, in a more mobile fashion and keep your eyes on the road if you want to listen to only our voices and not be locked on the screen. Uh, John Pinna, how's your parents' apple tree? I know that's been under repair. I just want to murder this thing. I'll just be honest with you. It's just, I said, well, why don't we just plant a new one? So we had a hurricane, tree fell on the apple tree. Uh, I had to cut around it. Then I had to rescue it. And now it's propped up. Uh, and it, But it's not... It's like, it's like this with supports. It's like at a 45 degree angle. <laughs> and my, but it's not dead. So my parents, I'm waiting for them to travel somewhere and then we're going to murder this tree and just plant Oh, it. no. But my father he, does not want me to do it. He's like, yeah, I, I spent 20 years growing this tree. So, oh, that's so sad. But it's been a six week long ordeal. You know, like come and do the tree. We've got to do this. And then he had some friends come over with a truck and they tried to push it up, but it wouldn't go and it was breaking. So it's, Ugh. you know, it's just, I, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. Dig it up, so, dig it up and replant it. Well, you know, th- this is runs into, you, you know, normally there'd be logic and you would have a process right. and that would be a, you know, we'd make a dis- an informed decision. But my father is very passionate about his process, uh-huh. Uh-huh. which means that as the son I have to kind of, you got to pick your battles. So I understand, you know, so I, I've done a lot of very strange things with this tree because my father wants me to do it because it's essentially a child in the family. Uh So, Uh um, you know, so there was, there was the, uh, he wanted to use a car jack on it. You know, he wanted to, uh, he had this whole this whole scheme with pulley systems, uh, so there was a lot of a lot of stuff going on there. So right now it's just got three supports holding it at a forty five degree angle, and but there's been numerous attempts with my father's interpretation of what engineering is uh-huh. to help the tree get to where it needs to go. <laughs> and he's he, not an engineer. Is he content in letting it? grow at a 45 degree angle because i don't think that's gonna work long term i don't again he, you know this is one of those things where you just wanna there's as a phrase i learned very young when anyone does anything that seems a little bit hokey and uh and the phrase the, the word is okay you know so, so so, so he says, we're going to do this. Uh, my, my response is, okay, I'll give you an afternoon. Okay. And if it doesn't work, you got your, your two, three hours out of me and that's it. But I think he kind of likes a project. He likes to, of, you know, during COVID is my mother. So he goes out in the backyard and studies the tree, walks around it. You know, he comes up with schemes and it's just occupying his mind. So, which is not a bad thing, but the neighbors must think we're completely insane. <laughs> That's the that's the thing. Every time I walk into the backyard, I'm walking. I'm going, God, our neighbors must must think I'm completely insane. Uh, my dad always says, "Grab the axe, grab the chainsaw." I go, "Well, we're not cutting anything." He goes, "We're working with the tree." So I'm walking back there, 
with the axe and the chainsaw. And I know we're not going to use them, but we got to look like we're going to do something. It's just strange. It's it's peculiar. You, but you need them. You need them just in case. You're dealing with trees. I, you know, like I get it. My dad's passionate about. He's a you know he misses calling as an as an actor. He's he's very much in the theatrics of everything. So so we're going to be on stage in front of our neighbors. We might as well look the part. So um, you know, it just kind of is what it is. But how are you? How's the family? What's going on? We're good. We're good. I'm uh, lots of reading and writing ahead of me and uh, around me. Uh, Professor Hawkins stuff. Yeah, and teach, teaching classes. So uh, I got I think three or four classes under my belt uh, so far. So. Uh, students don't appear to have flaked off terribly after the first class. So that's good drops. You know, it is what it is. Right. I think, I think one, one or two may have, uh, may have uh, dropped, uh, lost one because they figured out they didn't need the credits. <laughs> so I was like, I'd drop this too if I were you. <laughs> well, let, let me know if you need a guest speaker, take a night off. I'm happy to help you out. Um, yeah. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be fun. I love, I, you know, I loved it when I was adjunct teaching. I don't know if I can, it's always a, a weird thing schedule-wise, you know, to figure it out. But I almost did it this year at uh, at my old alma mater because I'm, you know, very close by Marist. But I decided not to because they had a really good origins and theme class. But we're celebrating a real big win here, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Not the, not the bulk of this conversation, but uh, the big win, um, big announcement in Southern Baptist life is that uh, – that a number of national Southern Baptist leaders uh, have come out in favor once again, actually uh, in favor of changing the name from the Southern Baptist convention to the great commission Baptist convention. And uh, so instead of SBC, it'll, it'll be G G C B. And uh, terrible acronym. Well, it's, it's the kind of acronym that often comes out of Baptist committees. And, uh, that I mean, name, I'm not saying came, no, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. I, it's, uh, I, I like it conceptually because the great commission is, is pretty broad. Um, right. Baptists like it because it's, uh, evangelistic in nature. So they want to, uh, talk about spreading the gospel and telling people about Jesus, which we, of course, I of course support. Um, but the words of the great commission are actually, uh, more expansive than telling people about Jesus. It's actually, uh, his command is to tell them all that I have commanded you. Uh, which goes a lot farther than, uh, and is more all-encompassing than than uh, the message of of salvation, which is important. Uh, but it's yeah, a double down on the on the on the the mission. Yeah, yeah. By so using the it, word commission. Yeah, it's it's reaffirming um, uh, uh, what what Southern Baptist uh, a lot of what the bulk of what the Southern Baptist Convention exists to do anyway, which is, is to tell people about Jesus and to train missionaries and to train uh, pastors and plant churches. So the Great Commission speaks to all of that in two words, although, uh, uh, as you've indicated, it's kind of a head scratcher. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. Um, but the, the main point, whatever that, uh, whatever that um, name becomes, the, the point is that we're dropping the word Southern. Uh, I don't know how I'm going to do my joke anymore. Right, right. That's, that's the problem. Exactly. So, so this is a big win for Crossy Face for a number of reasons. So one is, well, it's bad for me because my joke, whenever I meet a new Southern Baptist, a new, a new 
a new Baptist fr- a colleague or friend that's part of the Southern Baptist Convention, I always say, boy, I wish, what, what are you guys going to do when the Northern Baptists get themselves organized, right? <laughs> so I always, that's always my joke. Like, what, what's going on with the Northern Baptists? So now that they're all-inclusive, I lose that joke. But we had spent quite a bit of time in our early podcast, like maybe season one, talking about this a couple of times. And yeah. I think we pushed them over the edge. Like all, the pillory all, here with the all, cops. All, all, all credit to uh, all, all credit to Crossing Phase. We'll, we'll claim it, <laughs> even though uh, what a lot of people don't know, even a lot of Southern Baptists don't know, is that changing the name of the convention has been part of convention discussions and conversations and formal uh, motions and even, like I said, committees dating back to the 1970s. Um, wow, okay. I'll post a link in the show notes. Um, a, a friend of mine who works for the convention posted a, a Twitter thread that's really helpful that uh, walks back through all a, a number of, not all of them, but a number of uh, historic moments when Southern Baptists and frankly, dominant conservatives, very um, influential Southern Baptist conservatives who uh, supported changing the name um, for a number of different reasons. So uh, the, uh, and I know some some of my friends, they're concerned about losing the word Southern um, and uh, because they they're concerned about, you know, picking apart a word like that uh, and with the connotation that uh, anytime it's used, it being perceived as racist. And I think in this context, while I I'm, I'm sympathetic to that concern, um, the word Southern is not always uh, racist. In in terms of Southern Baptist history and the creation of the Southern Baptist Convention, as we've discussed on prior episodes, was in fact uh, part of uh, protecting and advancing yeah, uh, white supremacism in the yeah. South. And so the word Southern carried with it the protection of that particular culture, which was uh, dominated by white supremacy. The convention parted from, as you say, Northern Baptists uh, over the issue of whether or not a missionary, it's appropriate and Christian for a missionary to be a slaveholder. And the Southern Baptist convention at the time said, yes, it was. So even though they were sending missionaries overseas uh, to, to uh, people who did not share white skin color and they were trying to convert, they didn't believe them to be um, equal uh, to uh, to whites, and that's a big problem. It's unchristian. Uh, it's heretical, and uh, there are a lot of folks who are familiar enough with that history, uh, and that even though the convention has come a long way and for decades now has rejected white supremacy, and has um, come a long way and issued formal uh, formal apology and uh, done a lot of work. We're now, I think, up to since the night, since the mid nineties, we're about 20% non-white ethnic uh, congregations. Uh, so there's been a, a pretty significant change. Um, but that, that history of the Southern Baptist convention, uh, still communicates, uh, pretty unfortunate history. And so, uh, what it, whatever we call it, even if it's, even if folks aren't crazy about great commission Baptist, uh, this is a, it's a good, a good moment. It's a good win. Well, I also know that you guys have, you're, even though your past has been strange, 
um, and controversial. Um, you guys definitely do our debate. There's, there's a lot of debate within your organization. We've talked a little bit about that with, you know, the, the identity and where it's come from and where it's going. So, and that which shows, you know, an evolution, uh, uh of sorts, um, into, a um, a more liberal stance, particularly with in alignment with, uh, you know, how's it Disa? So Jesus, right. Don't so say, don't say liberal, say biblical, more biblical stance. More biblical. All right. You know, like, well, I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm speaking in maybe political constructs in America, I guess, but <laughs> you, um, if you're ter- speaking in terms of uh, classically liberal, I'll give you that. Uh, yeah. The, the, the Southern Baptist convention is, is run democratically. Uh, so right. in that sense, but uh, ideally um, hopefully we're more uh, moving more towards, towards being like Jesus. Uh, well, more in alignment with the subculture. dignity of the person, you know, yeah. that's, 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 that's yours and my passion. That's why we're in the international religious freedom game is the dignity of the human person. And, and I think that that's, it's, in, it's important for organizations to evolve, particularly in America, where they have, they can span to the beginnings of our country, you know? Right. So. Yeah. Well, and in the spirit of human dignity, part, part of what we believe um, hum, human dignity is about uh, is loving our neighbor. And uh, that includes our African-American brothers and sisters and non-white brothers and sisters who, um, who are might, uncomfortable with uh, uh a convention that's named uh, and that was named in the context of protecting white supremacy. And uh, that communicates, that communicates things subtly, even though, even when we don't intend it to. And uh, I think uh, part of, part of loving them and affirming human dignity is recognizing that and uh, changing the name of institutions to, to reflect that and to harmonize that I think is a, is a wise move um, and entirely within the spirit. Well, I, I mean, I appreciate, you know, it was, a, it, you know, we got through, you know, something we got through our win and we talked about a little bit about this identity, which is kind of neat um, because the history, it, it's nice to know that they're not static, but or this is our, this is our breaking out episode on, on the election. So on yeah, the election we, and, we, and, and a couple <laughs> of issues, and I'm going to stir the pot on a little bit because I figure we should right. jump right into the issue that everybody's think, talking about, you know, um, and and what's your TikTok alias? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Resisted getting on TikTok. Uh, no, the, the, you know, we're, if so, I think if we're going to talk about the election, and I think if we can talk, we'll talk a little bit about the two campaigns and and give that give our four one one and what we think about that. But hot button button issue, something that I that my that my tribe always talks about, and politically when I'm talking with people. It, particularly here in New York, everybody's saying, "Well, it's the the, the single issue. The single issue voters are going to are going are the ones that are going to sway the election." And one of the biggest single issue voters, uh, voting blocks out there, is abor- the abortion voters, the yeah. pro life. Yeah. So we, I remember, te- I texted you a little bit about this, and and we said, and I said, we were, we promised ourselves we'd talk about it, but I wanted to kind of hit that right up the head, right up you know, go right up the middle and say, what's your stance? <laughs> I, I, you know, I, don't, I hope it's not, you know, gonna, you know I, don't, I don't want to put you, the, if you, if you can't talk about it, if there's some kind of secret cabal about, but I wanted to see if you could get your opinion because we're talking about an, an imminent election with what's considered the most pro-life friendly president ever 
Yeah. I, I, something like that. I'm paraphrasing what people are saying. So the most supportive of the pro-life agenda. Um, I mean, I've advised the Biden campaign. I said, well, um, and, and like I said, I advise, I work with both parties, so it doesn't matter. But they asked me, well, what should we do with the, with the, with the pro-life? And I, I said, well, just put a moratorium on it for four years and freeze everything so you could capture the vote. Um, but which I don't even know what that means, but I was just saying, I, I, you know, like just keep it where it yeah. is right now, bracket it. Sure. Um, well, maybe we could talk about the normative issue of, uh, on abortion, um, another time, but to do some just rank political punditry, yeah. I have lots of opinions, uh, on this, how abortion, uh, plays in American politics and how it ought to play and how it doesn't really play. Um, honestly, in in any other circumstance, I would agree with your friends who think uh, single issue abortion minded folks pro lifers are going to decide this election. Um, I'm not sure that's the case this election uh, in the context of the pandemic. I think the pandemic and the economy and the riots and all all this all that's going on in our culture right now. I think those dynamics are going to shape the election more so than the abortion issue this year. I could be wrong. Um, I think uh, the pro-life vote is pretty predictable this year. Uh, as It wasn't as predictable in 2016. I think it ended up um, being a pretty significant player. Um, as a little history, um, if you recall the 2016 election, uh, Hillary Clinton went up against President Trump, now President Trump, then candidate Trump, when Trump didn't have any governing records. He had a really spotty history on abortion rhetoric and uh, right. funding of campaigns. He funded Democratic campaigns and even Clinton campaigns. And um, so a lot of people in the pro-life community were suspicious, even if they liked the rest of uh, what he was selling. They were pretty suspicious on whether or not he would deliver and what he was promising because he didn't have a track record. And uh, then there was, I think, the third presidential debate um, between he and Hillary Clinton. And he attacked Clinton on, on, a, on a procedure called partial birth abortion and uh, detailed it and uh, in, interjected that into the debate in a more aggressive way than, frankly, any Republican pro-life candidate that I've, I've ever seen. Um, so you had him engage the issue um, aggressively and in a very prominent space, more prominent than, than a lot of GOP Republicans, even if they're pro-life or comfortable doing. And right. it put Hillary on the defense and she defended the issue. And that exchange didn't take long, uh, but that exchange, I think, in my analysis, really swayed a lot of pro-life voters who uh, prior to that moment were skeptical. And so now, um, and I predicted this, frankly, a year and a half ago um, in an op-ed that uh, Biden, when he was going to be running up against Trump, is even in a worse position, politically speaking, on the issue than Hillary Clinton. Why is that? Well, like you mentioned, uh, President Trump has gained this reputation among some circles as, quote, the most pro-life president. Um, now, I think that, uh, to, to be fair, that's in a... It's at a particular moment when you had a lot of uh, abortion-related policies come out of the Obama presidency that, that the Trump administration is responding to. But look, he's the first president um, to show up in person 
to the March for Life, which is the largest pro-life rally annually uh, anywhere in the globe. Other presidents have addressed it via satellite remotely, but uh, he showed up and did it live. Um, this administration is has participated in the March for Life in a way that no other uh, president presidential administration has, even though there's always participation by uh, Republican um, uh, elected officials. And he's appointed two Supreme Court justices that theoretically, I emphasize theoretically, um, would be friendly um, to abortion-related cases. They've got two track records, um, uh, two cases at least, where that seems to be true, although they they lost those cases um, at the Supreme Court and at the Department of Health and Human Services. They've got a lot of uh, allies that are advancing conscience protections for um, uh, for medical professionals who don't want to participate in abortion. Um, and uh, they've got a lot of uh, pro-life allies staffed up and, and being in leadership in the Department of Health and Human Services, which is kind of the the most influential executive branch agency with regard to uh, abortion policy. And so he's got now four years of a track record. Um, administration does uh, that Biden is going up against. And as, as Hillary was advised in 2016, she didn't do it. Uh, and Biden was, I don't know if Biden was formally advised by anybody, um, but uh, he, he certainly like Hillary has not moderated himself on abortion at all. And I think um, with all the collective baggage that, that President Trump has, Democrats could do really well if either Hillary or Biden had just offered some sort of, um, you know, peace offering uh, to the pro-life community to moderate themselves on abortion. Um, moratorium might not be necessary, but at least uh, retaining the Hyde Amendment, which uh, last year Joe Biden uh, um, uh, stopped supporting after decades of supporting it. The Hyde Amendment basically pro- prohibits federal funds from being used for abortion, um, particularly in Medicare services. And uh, that's uh, something, that, it's a piece of law that has to be renewed annually along with Medicare. Um, and uh, so he's in a good position to attract pro-lifers that now look at a track record and are pretty happy with it. Um, yeah, I, mean, I mean, I just, I said, I was saying that you just, freeze everything where it is right now. You know what I mean? Don't make any choices. Don't move forward or backwards. Just freeze it for four years. And I was like, I, it's, you know, I don't deal a lot with the domestic issues. It's mostly 80% of my portfolio is international. But if you're going to, if you're going to do this, so you're talking about, he has the track record. Maybe it's important to talk about the constituency and what does it look like that? So who are, what is the, for for you know our listeners and the broader community that, that that pings us, what's the community look like that supports pro life? Like who are they? Yeah, um, it's a good question. Uh, I think it's uh, the demographics of the pro life community continue to get more and more diverse and more and more uh, and very youthful. Um, if you're ever in Washington uh, around. It's on or around January 22nd. It's usually a cold and kind of miserable weather day. Uh, you can see that the pro-life movement is, uh, uh, by the parade, you'll see a lot of Catholic uh, participation. They led, Catholics led early in the pro-life movement and in the March for Life in particular. Um, but it's- and There's been a lot of Catholic support of the president. Oh, for sure. Cardinal yeah. Dolan. 
yeah. right? If, yeah. So it, it, statements supporting yeah. the president. And, uh, and I know there was a nun that did it that was that got savaged on, yeah. on, on, on Twitter. I don't know what her name was, but it was pretty crazy because it was like the problem is, is I mean, because when you get into abortion, people say, well, you're anti-abortion, but there's a lot of you're against, but you're but you're OK with what I guess there was all this stuff that ICE was doing to people. Yeah. 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 They see an inconsistency um, and uh, rightly, I think. Um, some folks see an inconsistency with the pro-life message, which would, with what they perceive to be uh, among among conservatives and and particular Republicans, uh, not caring for the human dignity of say refugees and immigrants and and that right. kind of thing. Uh, right. And I think death there's a penalty be, and death penalty. Um, I think there are cases to be made for a, a lot of that. Um, but certainly, if uh, if there's callous disregard for uh, humans, even if you uh, support the death penalty or uh, have some sense of uh, you know affirmation of national security and border protection, uh, you you still need to carry yourself and and talk about people and, and treat people uh, and particularly incarcerated people, um, whether it's ICE or um, or federal or domestic or local prisons, uh, you got to treat people with human dignity and, yeah. and, and speak of them that way. And so there, they do seem that people do see a disconnect, um, between what appears to be heavy pro-life influences, um, on the matter of abortion within the Trump administration, but where that human dignity ethic, uh, doesn't appear to extend to other issues, namely immigration and, and refugees. I think it's, I think it's a fair, on the one hand, it's a fair critique uh, as a political party um, on individuals. I think it's a less fair uh, critique. So uh, you're looking at pro-lifers as just part of the Republican um, caucus, not um, the pro-life, the pro-life caucus as I'll, as I can <laughs> attest to uh, does not wield significant influence on say uh, congressional Republicans. And so um Pro-lifers are and social conservatives are frequently uh, at odds with fiscal and economic conservatives. Quite frankly, uh, fiscal libertarians. Um, that that's an internal GOP conflict that I don't think a lot of pro-lifers really appreciate. Well, so here we are. You got the different. You got a, a, a president's characterized as being pro-life mm-hmm. and having a track record of pro-life. But that's all through executive order, right? And that's also through, so it's through executive order, and it's also through um, public support. Uh, you were talking about the attending of some of these events and so forth, and we're also Judge, talking about and judges and judges and, and, and appointment, of, and appointment of judges, right? So with the idea that conservative judges, even though you know they're constitutionalists, so if they're constitutionalists, they're going to you know, they're going to be judicious, literally, on, uh, because of their constitutional uh, interpretation um, and the way in which they uh, they look at, at you know, the, the way in which they um, evaluate cases in, in, in alignment with their, their, their views of how the Constitution should be interpreted. So here we are, and, and we've got the, these three sort of pillars. Uh, demonstrating this administration is definitely for pro-life, right? Definitely for what's going on. Uh, what's, what's the rub? 
right? So yeah, what's what's happened so you, though? So here, here's here's my three question. and a half years when it comes to abortion, and so what's what are, what are the dividends to the community? So here's my critique. Um, number one, look, I'm I'm supportive of getting good justices and for a Supreme Court that is friendly and uh, would protect what we believe to be uh, human life uh, in un, in unborn babies. Um, that would be a good thing. Um, and I'm for, you know, an administration and uh, staffing up health and human services uh, with allies to that cause. Uh, but number one, you and I both know that administrative action, even through uh, agencies, is temporary. Um, that can expire in four or eight years, uh, depending upon how many presidential terms. And the next president uh, in his administration, his or her administration, can change it. Um, whether or not they will is a different story. It, it, it does take, you know, legal hoops and they still have to go through um, the regulatory process to undo things, but they can undo it. And so a lot of the pro-life policies being implemented in HHS, those things have an expiration date. We don't exactly know what the expiration date is, um, but it's certainly within a couple, a it's couple reliant of election on, cycles. It's, it's dependent on appointees, Right, which yeah. are a big driving force in all the agencies. So that for the you know for the larger population, particularly our international listeners, when when the president becomes when a president comes into office, the appointees become very important because they run the agencies essentially, or they exactly. lead the agencies. Yeah, and appointees agencies, are not just yeah. yeah, they're not just secretaries and deputies, assistant secretaries and deputy secretaries. There's there's director at the director and management levels. Yeah. You know, there's all types of appointees. So that's. That's important, important distinction. And, and, you know, the the DC lingo is that personnel is policy. And that's a lot, there's a lot of truth in that. So it's good to have allies, whether or not you're critical of of Trump on other things. Look, it's a, it's a, it's a pragmatic uh, thing to have uh, friendly pro-lifers in, in the administration and, and over at executive agencies. Um, the Supreme Court issue, um, people want to see, pro-lifers want to see Roe versus Wade overturned. That's the, the, the kind of, that's the uh, legal the precedent. Landmark case that, that's uh, the landmark case that legalized uh, what, we call, what we call abortion on demand in the U.S. Um, I have two critiques of that. Um, number one, we've had, we, have, we now have five Republican, um, re- Republicans have the, the five majority on the Supreme court and they've had two abortion related cases um, coming out of both Texas and Louisiana. And they've not, um, they've not, uh, they've pro-lifers have lost those cases. Uh, and those cases uh, to be clear, we won't, don't have to get deep in the weeds on them, but they had to do with uh, States regulating um, uh, the abortion industry in a way that uh, basically required them abortion clinics to, have the same kinds of standards that you would at a hospital or any other kind of surgical clinic. Uh, so it was a way of regulating the industry that n- doesn't even touch whether or not abortion was uh, good or bad or should be stopped or legal or illegal. It was merely about to the extent that states have the power to regulate it. Uh, so it wasn't even going for the heart of the issue. It was kind of uh, noodling around the edges of it, which is a worthwhile cause. Uh, but the Supreme Court, even in those contexts, uh, didn't, didn't give grant the states um, uh, permission to do that. Um, and so 
you know, yes, a, a not, an additional Supreme Court appointee friendly to the pro-life cause um, would be a good thing. And that maybe that might put, put us over the edge, so to speak. And that's the argument is I, I, that I hear is we just need one more, one more Supreme yeah. Court. Yeah. <laughs> so there, yeah. So there are two problems with that. Number one, particularly with this court, you don't see, you don't see the court typically making broad sweeping uh, 180 degree changes from prior court precedent. What they tend to do is do very narrow modifications of, of previous decisions. Um, so they might pick apart something, uh, they might modify it, but rarely do they do this kind of broad sweeping um, overturning. And so I think it's really unlikely that that would happen uh, to Roe v. Wade. They probably uh, start um, affirming some of the, like, the state level cases that Texas and Louisiana lost if we had a sixth, um, a sixth uh, justice on there. Uh, but the other problem is, look, let's say, for the sake of argument, that the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade. That doesn't solve the abortion legal landscape because the authority would uh, drop back to all the 50 states. And so you would then have um, kind of, yeah, you just run the show. Exactly. Uh, And naturally some states are going to be continue uh, to allow and have pretty strong protections for access to abortion on demand. And you're going to have other states that are, ready to already, you know, ready to outlaw, uh, um, outlaw it. Um, I know sample legislation in some states, um, I don't know which ones necessarily, but um, some states have passed laws that basically uh, if they, you know, basically if Roe v. Wade um, is overturned, if, or if that decision from the federal government leaves it down to the states, this is what our state will do. Essentially, um, it's very similar to like same sex marriage, right? It's similar, very, yeah. Very similar yeah, yeah. to, you know, when you know, same-sex marriage, some states don't like it. Some states, you know, don't endorse it. Some states do, and you can just cross the state lines and get married. Right, right. And so, so you you'd have a patchwork again uh, right. of abortion policy, and so you still need the federal government uh, to define the terms. Um, yeah. If you're a pro-lifer, um, if you're content you with need to states deciding it, right. And so, if if we're really committed to this thing that uh, that unborn life is uh, worthy of legal protection, um, then you can't just leave it up to the states. You have to have the federal government get involved, and you need Congress to do that because Congress is the only body that can create uh, sustainable. Um, durable legislation that affects all 50 states. Uh, and that, my friend, is, and to my pro-life listeners, uh, is our biggest weakness um, at the national political level is, is, is Congress is not pro-life enough to make that happen. So even if we get a sixth justice and they overturn Roe v. Wade, which again, I think is really unlikely, you still need Congress to get involved and lead on public policy. The Senate, you know, has been GOP controlled, but in, in these last couple of three years. So, what's happened there? Why? And I mean, you got a, you got a pro pro life president in the okay. executive branch, and you know, I'm 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 peeling this out of you, you know, a little bit, you know. So, <laughs> so you got that pro life president, executive branch. You know, we got you got. Uh, the, the 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 lower chamber is not not yours, right? That the House is the Dems, but the Senate right. is 
is is controlled by the GOP. And then you got the Supreme Court. So you know we have you know checks and balances, right? So you got the executive branch, Congress, and and judicial. Judicial is yours. Yep. Executive branch is yours. You know, meaning I, I'm saying that yours. Yeah. You yeah. Know, yeah. In the royal terms. In the, in the context of uh, the, the 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 Republicans issue. being the pro life party. Right. So and speak. then you got the Senate. So you got one of the two chambers. And, you know, and it's, you know, that, you know, being, being all the camps, so you got three of the three, there are three entities, you got the majority and in Congress, you got one of the two. So, yep. you know, you can't blame everything on the house. So what's the story? <laughs> what's going on? So why? Well, it, so and you can't blame best, everything on the president. Renaissance is what I'm saying in pro-life. Yeah. What, what's going on here? What, that's what's, a great, that's a great word, uh, actually. For what what I need to convince pro-lifers uh, to get behind is looking for a renaissance of um, of political strategy here. Uh, so, going back two years, a couple years, to when Republicans held the majority of Congress, they had the Senate, they had the House, right. and they had the President, who presumably would have signed any uh, any pro-life abortion-related legislation that they sent their way, and the Republicans. Sorry, let me fix my. Sorry, we got we got a double Hawkins going on. Sorry, yeah. Okay, listen. Our, our branding went off. I have a face for radio, so I'm yeah, yeah, all yeah. for a double Hawkins. We got to get our branding back up there. All right, sorry. <clears throat> so um, we had two. We had both chambers, and we had the president. And for two years, the pro life party, so to speak, did nothing. They yeah, passed zero legislation that had anything to do with abortion policy that could have been permanent, that could have gotten the president's signature. Uh, for example, um, Planned Parenthood still receives federal funds. Um, a lot of, a lot of president, a lot of uh, cam- candidates, including the president campaigned on defunding Planned Parenthood. They right. didn't do it during the Obama administration uh, of Republican controlled Congress proved that they could get that through uh, legislation um, uh, practically speaking. And then when they had, a president that would sign it, they didn't do it. Um, the Hyde Amendment that we talked of is st- still cyclical, still needs to be renewed every year. They didn't do anything to codify uh, that. Um, the Conscience Protection Act, which again, it's kind of on the perimeter of abortion policy, basically would would have protected medical professionals from participating in um, procedures that they that they had a conscience objection to, like abortion, because you had situations where some nurses were threatened with losing their jobs if they didn't uh, participate in a, in abortion procedures. HHS is trying to manage that through regulation, but. The Conscious Protection Act actually passed both houses, both the House, both chambers, both the House and the Senate. And then policy wonks will understand this term. It got lost in conference. And so, which means between the reconciling of the House bill and the Senate bill, and before it got to the president's desk, those folks, um, Republicans included and White House representatives um, let that piece of uh, let the Conscience Protection Act evaporate after it had passed both chambers. Um, I think that's unconscionable. We still don't know what Republicans got in exchange for that, um, but it was the single piece of bipartisan legislation that actually could have gotten through um, that the entire pro-life community um, 
the, all of the advocate groups were behind, um, including the one I worked for. And so that was a tragedy. Lastly, um, in the context of tax reform, Republicans tried to uh, cancel the adoption tax credit which isn't explicitly pro-life as it relates to abortion, um, but pro-lifers are very pro-adoption. And the the adoption tax credit is part of what is supposed to encourage and facilitate, incentivize uh, the adoption practice. It's a policy that could use some reform. That's a story for another another time. Um, But Republicans just side, you know, attempted to sideswipe the adoption community um, and as as ones who uh, are pro-adoption, the pro-life movement and advocacy groups, we worked for seven days to get that out of the tax reform bill. Um, and so even even this pro-life, the supposed pro-life Republican caucus uh, has a lot of problems. And I, there's a reason for this. I, I have I have the analysis that explains why nothing got done. I mean, is it just that everybody secret, they secretly support? Trump more than they support their issue? Is that it? I don't know about that. That's, that's probably true in, in some offices. I'm one that... Because you guys have... To, I mean, here it is. It's all... Everything you want is on the table for, for at least two years. And, no, and, and there's no... You know, and, and I, you know, so you hear this song and dance all the time, you know, and I'm not expressing any, my, any personal views on this one. I'm just speaking sure. as a policy wonk going kind of, you guys kind of, you kind of lost. There's a, there's a term for it. It's like, you guys just aren't, you know, they're, they're, you get everything, you have everything, you, it's, you have everything on, on point to, to streamline this, get this to the president for two years. There are zero obstacles. Supreme Court, Supreme Court board, is board, you know, supports you. Both chambers are in your camp. The president's going to sign whatever you put in front of him. And 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 admittedly, these last the first two years, you know, the president, you know, he was. Those were the years. Those were the years where everybody was saying, "Well, he hasn't been president, doesn't know politics." So you know, he was just signing whatever he could sign. You know, right. so here we are. I mean, no one was really, you know, no, you know, the ink wasn't even dry on the uh, what was the omnibus bill, right? Right. Yeah. So you know, no one even knew what it said. So, <laughs> well, that's we the thing. He he cut he cut deals with uh, Democrats over omnibus spendings, and the omnibus one of the omnibuses it was like uh, right. tw- it was twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen omnibus is where the Conscience Protection Act was, uh, right. and and it was tacked on there strategically, and they lost that. Um, and so, look here's here's my. Here's my analysis. And some of this analysis, frankly, stretches, I think you'll appreciate this, it stretches to other issues um, beyond the pro-life issue. Um, But I basically say, look, pro-life Republicans, pro-life policymakers, they're not all created equal. Um, There are different varieties of them. And so, number one, you have the champion. You have the champion um, of the issue, in this case, the pro-life issue, who they're going to they're going to sponsor the bills. They're going to write the bills. They're they're they hire staff um, with that initiative in mind. Give us an example of like who a pro-life champion is in the, in, in both chambers. Yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, it's just like say, the top one or two. Yeah, yeah. So in the House, Chris Smith from New Jersey um, and in the. Um, um, in the Senate, I'd say, uh, you know, Senator Rubio, Tim Scott, Senator Langford, right. um, formerly Diane Black in the House. Um, she was pretty fantastic. She's a former RN. Um, uh, they're going to be people who um, not only lead within the legislature, 
legislature, um, they're confident in media, right? So they're not scared of hostile media and they can, uh, they can message on, on, on pro-life policy issues without getting swiped um, and uh, caught off guard in, in uh, hostile media circumstances um, and, uh, and still retain their job and, and still going on, on and, and, and be representative of their constituency. Um, but there are very few of them um, out of, you know, out of the 535 members of Congress, um, there would probably be a dozen or less people that I would consider to be champions. Um, the next, the biggest section, I think, is something called the reliable vote. The reliable vote is a member of Congress who they'll vote for it when it gets on the floor. They might co-sponsor a bill if it's a popular bill. Right. Um, if there's but, enough signatures on it, if, yeah, you know, if there's the, enough I, signatures, I, if there's enough political energy behind it, they'll put their name on the co-sponsor. You and I both done this where we go to, you know, we, we were trying to get something passed. We go to like, and the majority of offices will say, well, I'll get this passed if you talk to right. this person or that person. And then right. you end up going right. all the way through, you know, yeah. and it's worthwhile yeah. to let everybody know that if you're on the Hill, it's always stop in the Atlanta offices because they have they have always have free coca-cola so <laughs> all the com- <laughs> i would always go in there even if i didn't have an issue to talk about and i would go in and i'd be like so just coming in to see yeah, yeah. you know is the congressman available or congressman available they're like no i'm like would you like a would you would you like a coke i don't mind if i would yes I would. yes i would yeah you, when you're the advocating congress- at Catfield hill you, you got to figure out where all the treats are the state-based right. treats so like Tex- texans will serve up uh, dr pepper and uh i think yes yeah, the georgia people will do coca-cola and pecans and uh, i think uh there's some south carolina office i think that was um you know, peanuts and sweet all, sweet like tea have- and yeah, yeah. Yeah. So one of the one of the benefits, Tennessee reps had uh, Google clusters. Yeah, yeah. I, I I I can't remember. I was in I went to Massachusetts and they had new ba- you know New Balance fa- factories up there. And uh-huh. uh, and I I was like, so you don't have any shoes? What are we talking about here? You know, it's, there's a lot of joking going. On. But a lot of people don't know if you're up on the hill and you're just visiting. If you're ever in Washington visiting your office, which you should, everyone should. Yes. Uh, there you can walk into just about any office and they all have something the products of their state that they give away for free and i know this is a sort of rabbit trail but but this is one of the sort of cool things whenever i was training my staff about doing stuff i'm like always go to atlanta or not atlanta um yeah uh, georgia always go to the georgian represent oh they have always have a coke so i don't want to hear <laughs> they, have a, they have a whole fridge full of it so uh but uh, uh but anyways it's i know we got down a real rabble but but uh, you, so engagement, there's the, always the people that there's always the Congress people that will support a bill if there's critical mass. Right. And then they, there's also those that are negotiating because they can't do the engagement on a specific issue like yeah. we can. So they'll or, yeah. with couriers of the issue in some respects to say, because we represent constituencies, right? So right. to talk about issues and to say, okay, well, you know, our, our community is supportive of this, this, and this, and this is important. This, this one issue A is issue A is important to us. We'd like your support on this and we'll support you with B. So there's a lot of these back, these negotiations that go on about representative bodies within the constituencies with that, that, yeah. that they represent in their home states and, 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 and we are catalysts to, to help garner support for those issues. Yeah. And, and I think in many cases you have people who, um, uh, are conscientiously, uh, I think in their hearts are pro-life, uh, 
Um, but sometimes a lot of them, a lot of these re- people who I describe as reliable votes, um, their, their passion isn't behind that issue. So maybe they're, maybe they got a lot of uh, single quote unquote single issue votes, um, because of their pro-life stance. Um, but they have other priorities like the fiscal, uh, issues, uh, or security issues. And so, uh, they staff, uh, they staff up accordingly um, so that they're prepared on their, their preferred issues and less so on the pro-life issue. And uh, that um, is a problem. Um, and I think that's part of the reason that you didn't see as much energy behind um, uh, pro-life policy in that Congress. And then lastly, um, there don't have to be too many of these. There aren't a lot of these. Um, oh, the other thing about the reliable votes is that they haven't been schooled up in, in the philosophy and the, the apologetics and the mess media strategy um, for the pro-life movement. Again, you could extrapolate this to other issues. Um, and so they're skittish and they're scared of hostile media, unlike the champions who are like, we got this. I know how to do this. Um, right. I know how to advance our cause in, in the media environment. Reliable votes are skittish about that. They're not, they're hesitant. They're unsure. They haven't trained themselves properly for that. And because the reliable votes, they've witnessed what can happen with the category, the third category uh, that I have. It's called reliable, I'm sorry, uh, the liabilities. The liabilities are people who are pro-life, but they're really unhelpful to the cause. They're zealous, but they may, might not be the best messenger uh, on a particular issue or policy. Um, their, their messaging is sloppy. They're not reliant or trained in the best or they of have uh, pro-life other politics. Or they have their, their issues, but yeah, they're, there's, they're not a great you know, like uh, other poster issues child. Compromise. Yeah, exactly. The whole thing, you know, you might be a, you know, clans member or something. I, yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. Remember the Aryan Brotherhood. Oh, yeah. So, so exa- examples of this, I'll, I'll name two of these examples. Um, the, there's a name that some people re- recognize or have forgotten uh, by the name of Todd, uh, Todd Aiken, uh, who is a, a Republican representative from uh, the Midwest, I even forget where, who made some kind of public comments having to do with, quote, re- leg- legitimate rape um, and, uh, right. and abortion and, 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 uh, uh, the mother's body in response to such a thing. And it was disastrous. It was uh, irresponsible. And uh, he rightly he was, so, I mean, rightly so. I mean, it was like, disastrous. I mean, so that that's the liability uh, and reliable votes. Don't want to see that happen to them. And uh, you know, other people like, uh, you know, uh, Roy Moore, who was uh, trying to run for Senate, uh, a couple years ago in that special election um, yeah. where there's, there's just a whole, there's a whole host of other things going on with them. And even though they claim um, the pro-life label um, there's a whole batch of other issues that really make it difficult for us. Uh, Steve King um, is one uh, who's now who lost his, I think his last election um, who has said all kinds of stuff that uh, besmirch, uh, people of color and uh, are really derogatory with respect to immigrants and and uh, and other people who are non-whites. Basically, uh, he had pro-life credentials, but was a disaster uh, in in terms of uh, advancing consistent human dignity. Um, so those are kind of my top three that I think translate to other policy issues that people ought to be aware about. And when pro-lifers contribute money to political campaigns, they ought to know that this is the reality and they ought to have some kind of sense about where uh, this representative goes. Uh, There are ways to fix this. Um, 
uh, and I've got a I've got a essay and op ed in the works uh, to to tease that out a bit. But that's basically um, what what happens. And the, my fourth category is the pro life Democrat. Uh, there are even less of these than champions nowadays. There's a lot of backstory to how that happened. But I think you know you you and I both know that the the most durable, uh, you know, the most durable and effective public policy is bipartisan. Um, well, I mean, it is. So let's what's happened. Let's get the analysis. So you told us about the three type of people. That in Congress, but what's ha- what what's what's the dividends? Let's get back to the the dividends. What have as you know, if you're a pro life guy at home or gal at home, and you're sitting there and going, "I'm voting for Trump right now," and and then when you say when they say, "I don't really care about anything," but pro but but the pelvic politics pro life, Trump has done what? What what's what's he done? That's and 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 it, so the question is, what has he done for the pro life movement? And then and, and that's that's the narrative. And then what is durable of that? That's, last my, beyond the presidency. Yeah, sure. Um, I think at best, uh, I think the best. I think it's. I think it's fair to say the. Yeah, the Supreme Court, I think that'll bear fruit um, in the long run. Uh, there's a theological term that my tribe uh, will resonate with. It's kind of like already, not yet. So it's like we got some friendly people there, but they haven't delivered. You guys got the best terms, already, not yet. Already, not yet. It's, it's an eschatological term. We can talk about another time, but um, or it's an eschatological phrase. We can talk about another time. Um, but so like you've seen personnel uh, on the Supreme Court, but we haven't seen any any wins. Um, so that's theoretical. Um, it, maybe it's forthcoming. So, oh, eventually. The, the, the judges, the appointment of the judges, that's durable, certainly, because they're, they're life appointments. Yeah. But the judgments are a loss right, right. now. Would you right consider now. it a loss? Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's I, a loss. I don't know. Sure. I mean, I, maybe they weren't just cases in the pro-life world but I, and i'm i'm kind of i'm you know I'm, I'm asking the dumb questions because i want to make sure that we unpack what what is considered a win and a loss because right. a loss for a, a it was it's pro-life and it's pro-choice you can, pro-choice, you can call yeah, it pro-choice, pro-choice. sorry yeah. it's escaped me for some reason so pro-choice so it, those would be considered pro-choice wins but they might be going to be considered pro a pro a pro pro-life loss do you see what i mean so. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think they're pro-life losses. I think, you know, these the laws at Texas and, and Louisiana were certainly motivated and, and led by uh, people, people who are pro-life trying to do pro-life things. And so for the Supreme Court to swat them down in both um, Whole Women's Health and June Medical Services, uh, that's a loss for the pro-life team. It might not be as much of a loss uh, – or a win probably kind of neutral for pro-choice because it's just, it, it retains the status quo. Um, right. So it's not as bad of a, a, you know, it's not a win. It's, it's not a win. It's, you could talk about it in terms of, uh, you know, kind of the scrimmage line, you know, where, where, where the movement went, you know, so in that case, the kind of pro-choice uh, community kind of held the scrimmage line, so to speak. And, and uh, um, the pro-life just community the failed, failed to get, you know, through. Um, you know, no, cause I, like my, my community or my community and and you know we were always trying to interpret what's going on politically and it looked like it looked like they were kind of like shows of pro-life support that that they may not have 
even thought that we're going to win or it was to test the water with the Supreme Court to try to get something up there rather yeah. than because it was they were kind of you, you know like the news hit it followed the cycle a little bit and then that was it yeah yeah I mean there's some there's some credence to that I think there there are opportunities where um trying to get cases up there as as kind of trial balloons um I don't know I do think it's really important that the cases that make it to the Supreme Court uh, for pro, you know, whatever your issue is, you want to make sure that what the what the what the lawyers call the fact patterns, uh, that the fact patterns are really beneficial to your cause, because the worst thing that can happen is you get a case that makes it all the way to the Supreme Court, but the facts of the case really don't do it for you. Um, you might might be able to sell enough of a of a you know an appellate court uh, split um, at the lower levels, but if you get up to the Supreme Court, you know you you better hope that your facts of your particular case, not your issue, the facts of the particular case really matter. You had that situation with uh, there was a um, uh, the insanity defense case coming out of Kansas and a case decided this year called Kaler. And uh, basically Kansas had done away, I think it was Kansas had done away with the, uh, any kind of insanity plea or in- insanity defense. Um, and look, there are people who can make some rational arguments that you need to have some kind of insanity plea. Um, but the case that they brought to the Supreme court was ridiculous. It was clearly premeditated. Um, and it was pretty, I can't are we, are, fathom are we, how, how that particular case got it, got up there to the Supreme court. Anyway, they lost. Um, and, uh, so pro-lifers in particular need to make sure and, and hope that, uh, state level cases that propagate up to the Supreme court are really good uh, and really they solid. Hold the water, yeah. And hold the water, yeah. yeah. They got to be credible. Pointees, whatever, whatever you think about Kavanaugh and and, uh, and Gorsuch, Gorsuch, they're both strict constitutionalists. Yeah, I mean, really strict constitutional. Like you know, so I, I yeah. and so you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta be able to unpack whatever it is in within that lens because of who they are and what they're yeah. about. Yeah, so so much of the case, and again, I'm not an attorney, but I've I've strategized with enough um, uh, law firms uh, over over law over Supreme Court cases um, that there's really there's a big time strategy on on how you write briefs and yeah. amicus briefs and 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 strategy meaning they're thinking about particular justices. And every sentence that they put into their brief and their argument is considering how particular justices uh, will react to them. And you yeah, only I mean, you know that. You and I both have been involved in that. Yeah, yeah you and I have both yeah. have been involved in that. that you know, researching the verbiage and making sure that, uh, I mean, you know, with the with legal teams, it's it's not easy. Um, and it's, it's it has to go back to their arguments in their cases and their words. Right. Exactly. Um, and then, I mean, I, I'm sure you sat there. You're like, we were. It's one word, and we're like trying to figure out what it means. And I'm like, I, I, I don't know. It was this is how I was using the sentence, and I'm always very, uh, you know, matter of fact. I'm like, well, this is the way I was using the sentence. It must mean. It obviously means this. And then a lawyer will say, it appears to mean this. That's a good lawyer. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's that's a good, a, that's a good a Lawyer is in academics. I, I use appears all the time. Yeah, appears yeah, to be. Yeah. <laughs> trying to soften I'm just it a little like, bit. No, 
Yeah, I'm like, no, this is what it means. That's it. And I was like, we just need to move on and be done with it. They're like, no, absolutely. And we have to need to debate this. And it, maybe maybe it's interpreted to this or maybe. So there's the, the idea of the court cases that go up and the two losses are, like I said, maintaining the status quo for, for uh, pro-choice. Yeah. Pro-life are losses. Win two justices, right? Two justices, not three. Two, yeah. two justices. So that's that's a that's the uh, a judicial. Yeah. Even though and, a, a big loss is the being asleep at the wheel for two years. Yeah, I, I, being asleep at the wheel, big time loss on on the congressional front. Um, I, yeah. I think there, there's I, I've offered explanations, but there's really no excuse. Um, I mean, even the uh, champions didn't push something, so they. I mean, and let's, let's they just got the they they got the Conscience Protection Act uh, right. through both chambers. That was that's where they put their energies. But then, you know, you, well, eighteen percent approval rate. You know, and if anything, you could say whatever you want about Trump. It doesn't matter what you say about. It, but when it comes to Congress, it just proves that they're just not doing much. Well, they're and just not doing much at all on both parties. Yeah, there's and both. But yeah, that just, ha- that happened during Obama too. One, after after the Affordable Care Act passed. Yeah. But Congress didn't pay. do anything under yeah. Obama except the status quo, well, uh, by, mean, and, by and large. Um, yeah, we, you know, the Obama, I mean, I can't. Yeah, they were. I mean, Trump, the whole Trump second did tax term was. I mean, right. yeah. we could have. Well, part of that was because of how. Part of that was because of how Democrats managed the Affordable Care Act because they didn't. They just shut out Republicans um, and didn't, didn't didn't let them play ball, and so it it, it poisoned the waters for the next. I, I know, I know, term. I know the one of the primary authors of of the Affordable Care. And you want to know what he said to me? He he just basically he was a doctor, and he and he basically just said, "Look, we knew it wasn't going to work. We just we just we just barreled it through. It was just like the Unibus bill, you know, like the tax thing, and." Uh, you know, so I think it's tit for tat at this way. I think we could kind of say, okay, both of them cancel each other out. But yeah. the fact is, is like, he was like, we didn't know. We, and I, we advised the president, no, but we, we had to do something. And he said, we just went, we just went, we just, we just, we just pushed it through. And he goes, we knew that the, that the, this, the website would go down. We knew that there was going to be all, that there were whole segments of it. And of course, you know, this is, an, this is a guy who just, he really didn't, he was a doctor, he was a pointy, you know, he, he really didn't care. You know, he was like, we did it. And then he goes, you want to know what? The second we got it through, I resigned, went home, cabin in the woods, did his thing. So, um, and, and Republicans didn't do any better when they, they marketed themselves, you know, ever since the Affordable Care Act passed, they marketed themselves for all of Obama's presidency that they were going to change it and revise it and fix it. And they didn't do that either. Uh, so I, I'm not talking about the pro-life. I, I can recognize that when I'm talking about pro-life failures, it's in the context of a greater trend in Congress, which is to outsource their job to the presidency and to the courts. So right. uh, senators on the pro-life front or the Republican senators, they'll go to the mats to get a justice on the bench, but they're not still not doing any, uh, they're still not doing any uh, legislating. Um, and so they're, they're happy to outsource all the policy decision-making to the courts and to the presidency. And so it makes the court, it, it makes the courts, and the presidency more powerful, uh, well, and it makes the courts more partisanized, uh, and and so and it makes the president it makes the presidential election more partisanized uh, because Congress uh, would rather keep their jobs than to do their job. Um, this is a, a big theme. Um, uh, this is I'm blanking on who uh, 
who wrote it? Um, um, Blake and I, the guy who wrote the, wrote a book on this, but um, it's, it's a pretty common pattern. So, and then lastly, I mean, the win, the last win uh, is in the executive branch, um, mostly having to do with HHS. I think at best you can describe that as a reprieve um, from uh, pro-abortion, pro-choice um, policies that we get enacted. Um, you know, they, they backed off the, uh, um, the, the federal government lost at the Supreme Court when they tried to force um, employers, both nonprofit and for-profit, to um, provide, <clears throat> uh, provide uh, abortion-causing contraceptive services and, and drugs uh, to their employees. Um, HHS had to rewrite that rule on account of a Supreme Court directive. Um, so you could, you could that's imagine- the win. That's the win. That's a win, but it's only a reprieve because, uh, you know, the next president. So I don't see much. Something different. So I see it's, two, so it's two not Supreme a, right. Court justices, and, and and I see you know this this business you're talking about the rewrite for HHS, and uh, but I see two court losses. I see wasted two years where you, you controlled House, Senate, yep, the, the you know the Supreme Court and the executive branch where it was sleep at the wheel. So if you were if you right now, Biden knocked on your door, Kamala knocked on your door, and they said, <laughs> well, I'm just saying, you know, and at the sure. front door, and then the back door, it was Trump and, and Pence. So and if, if you answer the front door or the back, it doesn't matter. If you answered the back, you know, and you were in a, you were going to answer both doors and advise one or the other from your tribe, what, what could they do? in this election with the single, the single issue voters, right. That, that focus on pro-life, what would be your, what would be your advice to the Dems? And maybe this is a hate crime and you don't want to do this. Just let me know. Or, and what would be your, your thing to, to Pence and the, and, uh, and Trump? I mean, you know, like I said, you know, we're trying to go back and forth in this because my whole thing was when the when Biden campaign said, you know, what do you, what do you do? I go, just, just, just maintain the status quo, do a moratorium on any, legislation just keep it cool you know you guys got plan parenthood just just go with the flow and then when, when i was when i talk with you know the, the 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 trump people you know i'm like i think you guys need something tangible but i don't, I don't know what that is you know because I, you know and, and i was like i was like i don't know other than but it seems like it's enough to just show up and at the rally it seems like it's enough to just have rhetoric it just seems like it's enough and for anybody who's really serious pro-life you know, you know, and it seems like if you dedicate your life to this one issue, and we're not talking about the contradictions, we're not going to go into that whole song and dance because we know all that's going to happen probably if we tweet this episode. Um, what, like, you know, what is the, they don't maybe don't need anything tangible because the idea of it is enough around the Trump administration. Right. Well, part of the reason, yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. And my message to the pro life community is we need to expect more tangible stuff, especially out of, uh, out of the legislature. Um, the, and I, but I think part of the reason the symbolic stuff, the messaging stuff plays so well is because the democratic party has, I think, right. The right repu- the accurate reputation of trying to get uh, pro-abortion policy in wherever they can. And so I think my advice to the Biden campaign would be like, look, say you made a mistake on the Hyde amendment go back to affirming what you affirmed for his entire political career up until last year, protect the Hyde amendment and um, 
say promise that you, that your HHS will abide by the Supreme Court ruling related to uh, they, the Little Sisters of the Poor case and the Hobby Lobby case uh, with regards to the contraception stuff. I think those two things in particular uh, would kind of defang the situation um, and uh, allow their administration to position themselves um, as a little more moderate um, than the Obama administration. Uh, a lot of pro-lifers believe, you know, view, um, including me, as the Obama administration um, was the most pro-abortion administration um, uh, in American history because they were trying to get pro-lifer, pro-life Americans and our taxpayer dollars to pay for abortion. Um, They were trying to breach that scrimmage line. And uh, that's a problem for a lot of people. I think if you uh, affirmed Hyde as as protecting the scrimmage line between pro-choice and pro-life Americans, that would go a long way. And if you um, appeal to, look, the Supreme Court has ruled that we cannot do a, B, and C with respect to uh, what companies have to provide in their healthcare packages, then then that'll be good. So you touch on pro-life, uh, things that are pro-life, things that are uh, bipartisan, and things that the Supreme Court have ruled on multiple times. Uh, I think that would give you sure footing. Um, so that's my advice. To your advice to the Trump to the, or to the, the, to the Biden administration? Uh, well, to the Trump administration, that's a great question. Uh, I think... I think uh, yeah, so. The Biden you got you know Hyman Amendment. Make sure it goes and and demonstrate a will to enforce the current laws on the books, which yeah. protects the line of scrimmage. Right. When it comes to tr- the Trump administration, like I said, I think it's enough just just to say it because and yeah, I mean the the Trump well, administration. Here's, here's, I'm gonna I'm gonna put a caveat on that question though, because Trump will he, he most, will most certainly say that he's gonna do it. So whatever it is that you say. So what is it that he can say? What is it that, that if, you, if, if it's not just the rhetoric and showing up at the rally, what is it that he can say that will be an action item, actionable item to execute so that the pro-life movement can, can demonstrate that there has been movement on this? So it's a little yeah, bit I mean, more he- of a... As, as the head of the Republican Party, he's got to prioritize the issue with specifics about what what ought to be possible in the legislature. The sad thing is uh, that ship has probably sailed because they don't uh, they don't control both chambers. Right. Um, yeah. uh, but he's got to if he had the opportunity again uh, to lead a Republican caucus, uh, he's got to, you know, the the advice and the request to him ought to be, look, Republican Congress doesn't do anything without his buy-in. Uh, they don't do tax reform. Um, they, they, you know, healthcare blew up, uh, healthcare reform blew up, uh, in their faces. Um, they got criminal justice reform done, uh, by virtue of, uh, long time, standing bipartisan efforts on that, who wisely struck while the iron was hot. Um, but he's got to incentivize only he he can he has the power to incentivize the Republican Congress in a way a few other presidents have, right. uh, and I think he, they what, what pro lifers ought to look for is 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 look for that kind of pressure on the Republican caucus uh, from the White House um, because we know that they're not doing anything without his without his permission. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a fair assessment. I you know I think I, I, I that's my I, soapbox. Well, we didn't go so bad. I was that wasn't such a hard 
you know, a hard push. I was, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't want to blindside you with the questions, but I thought it was appropriate because this is such a huge issue and really we're going to be tangling with this over the next month, you know, two months, month and a half. So uh, I appreciate your candor with it and, and, you know, talk about both sides of the issue because as somebody who deals 80% international, 20% domestic, yeah, I, mean, sure. I, I didn't know too much about the criminal justice reform bill until they asked me to get involved. And I was like, right. uh, scratching my head. And so I can say that I was involved in that piece of legislation, but I had to bring a lot of, it was my job to bring rural or the small scale police departments to, to the meetings there in, in at the White yeah, House. Sure. And, uh, but I, I, I didn't know what was going on with that. So with this issue, you know, I have my personal opinion. It's not my political issue um, in, in the sense that, uh, that I've never, sort of lobbied or been on the Hill talking about this or, or stuff. So, and I think that it's important for certainly my tribe, but also for the larger voter community to hear from, I mean, I, I'll call you a social conservative, you know, sure, um, you know, and uh, you know, so, and, and that, that has been, you know, in the game understands not only the punditry, but understands process really well. And, but also this is a, this is, this is an issue you fight for. Um, and fight on. I mean, pelvic politics is a core issue. One of the, you know, 10 commandments of your organization. Your word. What? <laughs> <laughs> we, we look at it as a human dignity politics. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to deny that, that pro-life, pro-choice is about human dignity. And it both stances, I think, touch on human dignity. Um, so, but but that, that is the moniker given sometimes from uh, from left of center folks uh, to, from the pro-choice community. Right. Yeah. No, well, I'm not. You know, that's not intended. So, um, yeah. So, uh, with but, yeah, yeah. No, so, well, I, I'm not, I don't want to burn it down. So I think it's really important for us to kind of unpack this for for on the, on the election and sort of speak openly about it. I think we can talk about, you know, we'll bring, we'll have to bring in some, some people to speak about this. And then the next thing we need to do is, uh, and now in this show, but I, I'm curious for us to have a little conversation about the election and what we think, what, what, what's going on with each campaign. And uh, unless you want to do it on this show. Yep. So we're, I think we're up against the clock on this one. Yeah. So, um, so I appreciate you taking the time and I appreciate you making the effort on this because it's, and, and we should look for your op-ed. You're going to write an op-ed about this that says everybody should vote for the moon. So um, <laughs> it's a uh, it's a new strategy for pro- pro-life politics coming soon. Oh, here it is. OK. All right. Nice. Nice. It's already, it's already written. I've been riffing on it the whole time. Uh, so and uh, no, I, and 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 we we'll, we'll post some to throw some stuff in the, in the in the show notes so everybody can kind of get up on the issue and figure out what's going on. But I really do appreciate you addressing it because it means no problem. They're great questions with, with what's going on here, you know. So they're great questions. Election. I think the, the pro life community uh, they're they're good about their priorities, their pro life vote. But our uh, as Congress is concerned, um, there's certainly not a mass quantity of single issue. Uh, representation on that so that's my critique um for this episode of crossing phase my name is matt hawkins my co-host is john pinna and you can find us at crossingphase.com and then easily wherever your uh your favorite podcasts are are broadcast um, and obviously online here at youtube.com This has been Crossing Phase with Matt Hawkins and John Penna, a podcast of Roll Top Productions. 
If you like what you hear and would like to help defray the cost of the show, consider sponsoring us on Patreon by visiting crossingphase.com. Crossing Phase is available on all your favorite podcast outlets, including iTunes, Google Podcast, Overcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and TuneIn. We'd appreciate your review of our program, especially in the iTunes store. Let us know what you think of the show via Twitter, at MTHawk, at JTPinna, or at Crossing Phase. Music for this episode is courtesy Vajra, whose music is available at thevajratemple.com, Spotify, iTunes, and Amazon. Show notes for this episode and more are available at crossingfaith.com.